Hey everyone, my name is Patrick Akil, and for today's episode, we talk about creating your own programming language. My guest Felina Hermans talks about Hedy, the language she created to teach kids how to program. She mainly does that over at the high school of Rotterdam, Lyceum Kralingen, and she also teaches at the University of Leiden. Hedy is now used all over the world, and it's an amazing journey of how she created it and where it's going. Don't forget to like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Enjoy! Welcome to Beyond Coding, a dive into the world of successful people in IT. From your sponsors, Zebia, creating digital leaders. Here's your host, Patrick Akil. Hi, Felina. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good as well. Good as well. It's uh, already pretty late in the afternoon. Uh, we got a whole setup for the remote recording here, um, but I'm happy to have you on. Uh, you're very busy and, and hard to get a hold of, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being so patient with the planning. <laughs> yeah, no worries, no worries. Uh, we plan ahead, which is uh, nice in this way as well. Um, I invited you to talk about programming languages or more specifically, creating your own. Because uh, I know you've created your own programming language, but I don't know why people do that. There's a lot of them out there. Um and they keep popping up, basically. I mean, I've seen Lua and Julia as, as more of the newer flavors. Uh, but I don't know why. Why did you decide to kind of start your own programming language in the first place? Yeah, so I don't know. I can't speak for other people why they do it. But yeah. I think many people do it for the reason I did it. And that's to solve a problem I had myself. Yeah. I think that is a reason that many people make a programming language. That there isn't something that exactly fits their needs. Yeah. And they have the skills to build something that fits their needs better. That's definitely what happened in my case. Yeah. And what, what was the problem you were trying to solve then? So the problem that we had is that I started to teach in a high school a few years ago in a Dutch high school. And then the youngest kids in the Dutch in Dutch high school, they're 12. Yeah. Um, and we thought, you know, they can do they can do Python because Dutch teenagers, you know, they know English and they have enough keyboard and typing skills. So it should be OK to do Python. Yeah. It's a, it's a friendly syntax, right? It's a friendly language for beginners. But then we found that, that some kids, for some kids, it was totally okay. Some kids might already have a bit of experience with programming or they're just very excited. But for some kids, Python was too hard. Mm. Um, and I think this was because of the syntax, because there are a lot of things that can trip you up, right? Even this very simple program, just printing, hello, everyone. You have to do print and it cannot start with a capital letter and it cannot be a D at the end of print because yeah. that Python crashes. You have to use round brackets. You have to use quotation marks. If you want to use a variable, right? Like name is Patrick and then print hello name and then hello has to be in quotes, but name has to not be in quotes. So there's all of these subtle things that can go wrong. And some kids were just only struggling with that syntax. And then that prevented them a, from understanding the concepts, like what is the concept of a variable? And B, it also prevented them from having fun. They started to get really frustrated, like, oh, you know, programming is not for me. I will definitely not choose this as an elective because it's too hard and it's, it's too tricky. So I thought, well, hmm, you know, what can we do? Clearly there is a solution and that's block-based language. It's like Scratch, right? Visual languages, you click the blocks together, you have no syntax, yeah. no syntax errors directly. So this is nice, but then, yeah, it looks a bit childish and especially in high school, kids want to do 
grown up stuff because they're already old, right? And then they're <laughs> almost adults, they think. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they were just not so excited about the kids stuff. So then I thought, well, maybe what we can do is we can make a programming language that does things step by step. Okay. And already conceptually, many teachers do this, right? You don't teach functions in lesson one. You do say first you do printing and then maybe variables and then conditions. But then you do always have to use the full syntax of Python. That's yeah. just what you do. So then I thought, well, I can just make a baby Python. Uh, don't tell my teach my students I, I call it baby <laughs> Python, but that is what it is. We make yeah. a baby Python, whereas in the first level, you don't need to use round brackets around prints, and you don't need to use quotes for strings. You can just do print, hello, everyone, hello, Xavier. And then it just prints that without that, any syntax, so to say. And then gradually, every level, we add a concept. So then first, we add a variable. But then we do not distinguish between strings and variable names. Yep. You can just say name is Patrick, print hello name, and then it just works. You don't have to make a difference. And then you know slowly we add the concepts in, until at the end, level, level 18, you are actually doing a subset of Python. Nice, nice. I don't know how it is to get taught a language, let alone teach it to someone else uh, on that level, right? If they're 12 to kind of 16 years old, um, your brain already has a lot that's get, it's getting taught, right? You have the basic uh, kind of electives that you have. Um, and then programming is, is very specific, as you mentioned it as well. Um, I think I got taught Python initially. Um, and I didn't really mind the syntax, right? I, I could just accept this is the way it is, even though I don't yeah. really understand why that is. Uh, but maybe at the age uh, of 12 to 16, you ask more questions. I don't know how that would go. Yeah, and so we found that it really differed. So, so for some kids, it was totally okay, right? Mm -hmm. They could start to Python fine. Yeah. But for some kids, and for various reasons, it was hard. Some were already a bit insecure. Yeah. Uh, sadly, typically girls are a bit less, they just have less self-confidence about programming, maybe because people tell them to their face, it's not for them. Yeah. So there was that category. And also indeed, people were like, so teacher, why do I have to put a round bracket there, right? Yeah. You, you cannot answer that question at the level where they are. Exactly. Right? Because then you have to explain, well, this is actually a function. Like the f of n is n squared in math, but then there can be multiple parameters, right? You, you can explain it, but then you have to first explain many other things. Yeah. And then, of course, you say something like, well, you know, child, just put it there. You know, don't think about it. Just do it, which is, as a teacher, it's an unsatisfactory answer. Right? I don't like to say <laughs> Just because I tell you to. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Man, you would have to explain a lot of stuff just to get the basics in if they would really drill down and ask those questions. So Yeah, exactly. And that definitely happens. And then just yeah, that's that's it, it's not a there's not a good solution there because you can say something like, Well, imagine that this syntax element was not there. Yeah. That would be confusing. Right? They cannot imagine a language that doesn't have that. They can hardly imagine Python. Exactly. Yeah. So what, what is the end result you have now? Is it similar to kind of pseudocode? I mean, pseudocode is kind of different for a lot of people anyways. Um, yeah, so definitely level one sort of looks like pseudocode. Level one, it's literally the word print. Yeah. And then whatever you put behind print, that is what's printed. Yeah. And then you also have ask, which is secretly input. So you can get a, a pop, pop like a, an alert in JavaScript. And then also you can ask the user for input so you can make something that's a little bit interactive. Yeah. So it definitely has this pseudocode feel because it doesn't have quotes and commas and brackets, but it does run, right? Secretly it transpiles already to Python. Yeah. So it's not pseudocode in the sense that it doesn't run. Yeah, that's really cool that it, I mean, 
it's kind of a screen in front of Python, right? To make it in, easier for you to input stuff uh, and it transpiles then to the actual language. So probably gradually yeah, you absolutely. can introduce more, more concepts as well eventually. Yes. Yeah. So for example, in level two, we introduce variables yeah. and then there are variables so that you can set a variable to a certain value and then you can use it, but then it's just string values. Then there's no calculation or something yet. Yeah. And then we add lists and then we add conditions and then we add data types and loops. So all these things that you would traditionally teach in a course, they also uh, are part of our trajectory. Yeah. What was the effect on the, on the class after you had implemented it? I don't, I don't know the, the time frame here either. How long have you been teaching with this new language then? So this is the second school year that we're teaching with this language, yeah. but we have three new groups in a school year. So we are already at our, uh, we had two groups last school year and now we've had two, three. So this is the sixth and seventh group in our school yeah. are starting next week. So we've done a bunch of generations, so to say. Uh, we never did Python and also Hedy with one generation because of course, if they're already doing Python then we can say, oh, stop, this is too hard. Now we're switching. So yeah. we've only have had fresh bunches, uh, but it's, it has been really interesting. And I think the best feedback that we got from the teacher in that school, in our school, is that he said, when we use Python, only some kids were having a good time and yeah. only some kids were learning. And now with Hedy, all kids learn some concepts. Still, you have kids that go quicker and they know more and yeah. they advance maybe to a higher level. But at least now it feels like everyone has a fair shot. Everyone is enjoying themselves. And we found we did another experiment with specifically only with girls yeah. and a female teacher. And that female teacher also said, like, oh wow, it's like this is made for girls. Well, it's not made for <laughs> girls specifically. Yeah. But we just know from research that sadly girls have this, uh, they just have lower self-confidence. So if you break it up into really small steps and they succeed in the small steps, and yeah. the girls go like, oh. Oh, I can do this. Oh, this is this is doable. And then slowly add a little bit more. And then they are also sort of sucked into how fun programming can be without we, we push a bit of the frustration backwards. I think that's what, yeah. that's one of the things we do. I, I love hearing that. Just getting all the kids on kind of the same base level, right? And that gradual yeah. approach is is not there or, or it's harder in a specific programming language. You get confronted with a lot more first. Uh, and then yes. gradually yes definitely yeah. yeah so and also like one of the uh well this isn't the explicit goal but this is also what happens it's also a leveling device mm. so what you can have in a high school but also in a university is that you know two or three kids they already know a lot of programming yeah when i was in university i was that annoying student oh, like, really? oh i already know everything <laughs> yeah look at this ginormous program i made right yeah. and this is also well, not useful for them because they already know this, but also it can be very detrimental to the rest of the class yeah. where kids that have no experience are like, well, this guy already, usually it's a guy, this guy already has 500 lines of Python in one week, right? Yeah. So I will never get to that level. So the nice thing also is this level, a teacher can, can block levels. A teacher can say, you can only go to level three and after that, it's just closed. If you're there, go read a book, go read a Donald Duck, <laughs> right? <laughs> Stop programming. Yeah. So it also makes sure that the quicker kids, which you could say, you know, that's not where you're, where you're necessarily most concerned about those kids that can already be programming in a programming class. Because sort of, it's also a break for them. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, if you can already do these things, congratulations. There's nothing to learn for you now. So it's very much a leveling device also. Yeah. Awesome. That's, Dive into kind of how you started 
creating this programming language. Because if someone said, Patrick, create your own programming language, uh, I would have to Google a lot of stuff initially. Because I have no <laughs> clue how you would start it. Um, so you decided to start this to solve the problem that you had. How, how did you start and, and how did you go about doing it? Well, I also did have to Google everything. <laughs> uh, but the, the benefit was that I had a lot of training already. So mm. I had experience actually in building developer tools. My, my PhD thesis was about spreadsheets. And for my thesis, I built um, a spreadsheet RDE. Um, so something that can do, for example, smell detection on spreadsheets. And as awesome. part of that, we had we had to build a, a parser for spreadsheet formula because if you want to detect clone detection for something is this formula used in many different places yeah. and we also build a, a refactoring tool for spreadsheet formula so you can imagine if you have to refactor something you have to first parse it and you have to understand what does this formula do before you can process it yeah. so we had some experience actually writing grammars and writing parsers and that type of stuff and also when i was in university even before my phd mm. um i i really really very much like programming language design courses i took like five compiler courses as elected i don't remember <laughs> why I took these things, but I, I thought it was just really interesting to build programming. Yeah. So I did have some experience and some knowledge, even though of course I also had to build a bunch of things. Um, luckily though, I didn't have to build everything from the start because the first version was very much three other open source projects stringed together yeah. with, a, with a little bit of duct tape, you know, and getting it done. So one of the things we use is a, a framework called Lark. This is a grammar and parser framework for Python. Okay. So you can type a grammar and a grammar is what your programming language looks like. So you can imagine for, for our uh, level one of Hedy, the grammar says, well, first there is the word print and then there's whatever random text you want, this is a rule that exists. And here's another rule that exists. You can have ask, ask also as the word ask, and then whatever you want. Yeah. And then what does a heady program look like? Well, it's either ask or print or echo. This is our third command. Uh, or it is an error program. Any other thing that doesn't, doesn't look like these three things, it is an error program. So you can define that in Lark and then Lark, can just transform any text you give large to a parse tree, to the structure. Yeah. And then that parse tree then can be interpreted. So I look at the tree and I know, oh, this is print. And then what I do now to transpile this to Python, to make Python out of this conceptually, I say, okay, well, I, I again put print there yeah. and then I put brackets around it and quotes around it. And then now in ta-da, now it's a Python program. Interesting. Um, and then comes the other open source project that we use is called Sculpt because Hedy is a browser-based language. Yeah. So I had Python. Okay, now, now what, right? Now I have a Python program. Okay, I can run this on the command line, but a 12-year-old is not going to use the command line. Exactly. And also in many schools, teachers can't even install an IDE. Yeah. Uh, they have to do it in the browser because they don't get access to the computer. Like I cannot even install Visual Studio Code on the computers in my own computer room in the school that I work in. Yeah. So yeah, now I have this Python program. Now what? So Sculpt is a nice re-implementation of Python and JavaScript. So then you have a Python program and Sculpt just runs this for you in the browser in in, uh, in JavaScript. So these two things combined and a bit of Google and a bit of <laughs> shoestringing everything together. This was this was version one, yeah. and then you know I made I made a prototype and it sort of worked. Yeah, and then the prototype. How did you how did you kind of test and and make it better? Basically, did you already uh, experiment on your on your kids? Man, that sounds sounds bad. Experiment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that, yes, yeah. So, so yes, 
Yeah, yeah no, this is what we did. So we did two things, actually. Uh, interestingly enough, when I was programming this, this was in the uh, Christmas 2019. Uh, little did we know of what would be coming. Yeah. So when my first prototype was ready, this was February 2020. Oh, yeah. And then I was supposed to, to go to Norway, actually, to speak at a conference where I would, would launch Heady. Yeah. Uh, we would put it out there, but then this conference was canceled, sadly. And then COVID happened. So what we did then, I did the work. So it's like, wow, okay, this exists. <laughs> it, it, um, maybe when the schools are closed, when the schools are closing, and you're really you're sitting at home and and you're bored and your child is bored, you can do some programming with this free thing that we made. Yeah. Uh, so the university made a really nice press release saying, well, if you are at home with your child and your child is bored and you want to do something educational, maybe you you can try this. So that already gave us a lot of users data. So we can already see what error messages are commonly used. Um, then we had no user accounts. We didn't know what type of kids were making the programs, but at least we could see what type of errors are common and do we understand this error. So that yeah. led to a lot of improvements. And then, you know, then we had lessons. They were online lessons, of course, but then we started to do lessons online uh, in our own school for uh, for high schoolers, exactly of, of the group, the Brugglassers, the, the first year uh, high school students yeah. that we aimed for. Well, we did online lessons and online observations, and we had them fill out the survey online to, to gain some understanding of um, yeah, of what worked and what didn't work. That is such a cool and kind of practical approach, uh, just putting it out there. And, and I mean, right as you would uh, another product, right? If a company creates a product, you get it into the hands of the user and you learn from that, learn from them actually using it, uh, getting that feedback yeah. and then implementing those changes. Absolutely. And I think if it would have been not COVID, then we would have done it smaller scale. Yeah. We would have first done one or two classes and, and you know, iron out the biggest bugs. But then it was very clear at that point in time that that wasn't going to happen yeah. uh, until a very long time. Actually, it wasn't until the summer of 2021 that I observed with my own eyes in front of me in the same room, <laughs> a child using Hattie. Yeah. This is when already a million Hattie programs had been created. Because yeah. only then, again, we could do you know face-to-face -face stuff with children. Um, yeah, that wasn't what we had wanted of course but yeah it ultimately did work quite yeah. well we, we learned a lot from the data gathering as well and after a while we have this now where you create a you create a user account you can if you want to you don't have to but you can create an account and then we ask what is your gender where, where are you from what is your uh, year of uh, birth yeah then we now we gather data that's a little bit more precise so we know what what younger kids struggle with what older kids struggle with at least if you give us permission uh to uh, to use your data for that purpose yeah could could other schools also use and implement heady in their own kind of educational system um so they can use it for sure and they do use it also there there are, there are dozens of schools in the netherlands nice. and even more outside of the netherlands that actually use heady already awesome uh, but then they do use the web version like the version that that we give to them yeah uh, in principle of course if you want to make your own changes suppose you want to merge two levels or swap two levels yeah if you're a computer science teacher and you have the skill it is open source you can fork the repo you can run it on your own local machine inside the school yeah. that is absolutely possible allows and uh, well, yeah, i wouldn't say encouraged because i would rather have people use our trajectory and give us feedback if it doesn't work but it's definitely possible yeah, the, yeah. our open source license uh, allows for that type of use that's awesome 
And you mentioned immediately it's open source. So I, I want to zoom in on that. Um, you're not, are you the only contributor? I, I hope not. No, no, there yeah. are many countries. That would be very impressive. <laughs> in the meantime, now, Eddie is available in 18 different languages, exactly. including uh, Hungarian, Czech, uh, Chinese, Arabic, yeah. <laughs> Hindi, Bengali. So, no, luckily, we have many, many open source contributors and of different flavors. So, some people are translators and yeah. they just translate content, they translate keywords and uh, stuff, stuff related to the language. Yeah. Uh, some of them are, are school teachers. They don't even are necessarily programmers of course but also we have some contributors around the world that are helping us you know just to fix bugs add features sometimes discuss implementation just the, the teachers we have one of, in our team we have uh, an elementary school teacher in, in the netherlands yeah. uh, she doesn't necessarily contribute code but she contributes content she writes lessons and uh, she also participates in discussions. We say, oh, what do you think of this feature? She says, no, I think that's a bit too complicated. Or couldn't you do this and this? And she makes really nice mock-ups. Yeah. She says, oh, why didn't you make this? And then she puts it in Photoshop. And we're like, oh, that's great. We can make that. So those types of contributions, of course, are also uh, very, very welcome to, uh, to the team. Yeah, that sounds so cool. Did you, did you imagine it going this direction when you created it? Because it was very much... <laughs> no targeted to solve a specific problem right and it it's probably solved that and it's solving different problems now as well it's also creating different problems <laughs> now because now i have to maintain the source project yeah. i think in all honesty if i would have known that all of this would have happened i don't know if i have would have wanted to start because okay. i just made this prototype it just it was very good right it was just everything meshed together yeah. um and, and now we have to do maintenance, of course. Now it's big and some of the stuff we have to, already we have rewritten yeah. and we have some other rewrites planned just because we didn't anticipate scale. Like a, a funny story is uh, one of our biggest initial users was a bootcamp in South Africa. Okay. They used to do Python and they had the same problem of feeling that for some of their participants, Python was too hard and they saw it on Twitter and they maybe overestimated our professionality because <laughs> it looks really nice but in the back end you know it, it wasn't really built for scale or anything and they had 600 students joining one day oh wow <laughs> Poof, our free Heroku plan that we yeah. ran at, at that point in time it was like <laughs> yeah. yeah it was uh, something really nice email they're like yeah we couldn't help but notice everything is broken <laughs> <laughs> oops yeah so yeah these things you know if you it, it sort of maybe you get the if you really want to build something for production yeah maybe i think i would have gotten a bit of like analysis paralysis like oh no what is the right choice for this and how yeah. do we make a skill for 100 users and then if you have to think about that from the beginning then maybe you never got something finished so i'm happy i really started small and naively and then of course well an obvious solution was just to throw more money at heroku initially right yeah. we just bought a more expensive plan which will solve the problem for a while and they were like okay what happens if 100 users log in at the same time and what are the what are the optimizations we can make and then yeah then you have to do some rewriting but if you would have if you if i would have done all those things in the beginning then maybe that would have never been a prototype yeah yeah i think it makes sense i mean i i have a hard time saying what i would do uh, but i like your approach in starting really small right and when there's a new challenge when the challenges scale uh, you fix the scale basically or when the challenge is well it yeah. doesn't actually work there's a, a critical bug uh, you fix that and you look 
just enough forward and not too far ahead in the future. Um, and you just yeah, keep improving. Yeah, I think that really makes sense. Because also in the beginning, I didn't know if it was going to solve my problem, yeah. right? And there were two different questions that I didn't have the answer to. One question I really just didn't have the answer to was, can I build this technically? Yeah. Because there are very, very interesting challenges that you run into because parser frameworks, they are meant for one language. They are meant for Java or Python. Sometimes they can handle two languages, something like uh, C-sharp and Link, right? Link is sure. sort of a sub-language. Or some, uh, some parsers, they can do uh, Java, and then you, you are allowed to embed SQL. And you don't have to put it in the, in the string. You can just type SQL, and then it knows what you want. Yeah. So there, there are some of these parsers that handle two languages. But then having different levels of languages. So, yeah. so initially, just build separate languages, like level one and level two were unrelated. But of course, they're not unrelated. You, have, you want to do something with the one language to the other language. So one question was, can I build this, right? Is this a reasonable thing to do? Yeah. Can I, can I be part of framework so much that they do this thing? That was one question that I just didn't know what would happen. Yeah. Uh, another question was, and then you have this language, how does it feel firstly to me? Like, does it feel like a real language? And then you want to try it with kids. And all of those things also could have failed, right? Maybe. It was too hard and we would have gotten too many error messages or maybe yeah. kids would reject it philosophically. And some kids do still, uh, like some kids also reject scratch. They say, this is a baby language, yeah. right? We, we want to have, we are adults, we want to have a real <laughs> language. Of course we can, sometimes you argument with these kids, right? Yeah, this level 18 is actual Python. And some yeah. of them are like, okay, okay, that counts. <clears throat> but, but some of them reject this. They, they say, no, I want to have a real cool language. I don't want these baby, baby training reels. Yeah. And so these are all things that really we just didn't know at the beginning. Can we build this? And will kids actually like it? Yeah. And then there is, of course, still the question, like, does it help? And, and do they learn something? Uh, but if kids don't buy that it works, <laughs> if they don't like what the look and feel is then, then it's not going to happen yeah it's interesting that you mentioned that because that would have never been one of the things i would think of that kids would actually reject it and say this is these are training wheels and i want i want the real thing basically yeah yes no that that's definitely a thing and we specifically saw that in um in in scratch that after a while 11, 12 year olds, when they start to go to the end of elementary school, the beginning of high school, yeah. they're like, no, I don't want to have a toy language. It's literally toy. <laughs> toy also. language. No, this is what, yes, this is what, this is what my, my li little baby brother in, in group six in the Netherlands, right? In yeah. two or three years younger than me, they use this. I want to use something that's more age appropriate that really fits this, fits early puberty when you want to do stuff that is authentic. And you want to do stuff that is adult. And also another dimension is some kids want to get into programming, not because they like programming, but yeah. because they realize it's a good career. Right? They want to become programmers because then they can make 100,000 euros at Google, which mm. I think is a valid reason to want to become a programmer. If that is your goal, not necessarily learning concepts, but really being having an employable skill, yeah. then... Python is what you want, right? or JavaScript, or Java, or C, or, exactly. or C Sharp for Unity, for example. Then something that looks like a toy, it doesn't feel like it meets your goal. Yeah. And then you get, again, in this discussion, you, you can convince a kid. You can say, well, but this is actually like the thing you will use, and the thing you learn now, it will be useful later. But this is a bit like the round brackets. You have to sort of tell them, trust me, this will be fine. Yeah. Um, 
having something where they immediately see that it looks like something that can make them money if that's their goal, that of course makes sense. Yeah. And it, it goes back to, I think, how other concepts are taught. Um, because stuff like math, right, it's very theoretical. Uh, you can think, well, you're going to benefit from it in the future, right? It's going to own your thinking process to some degree, uh, or you're going to see some examples, which makes sense in the real world. Uh, but programming languages are the real deal, right? If you actually teach someone Python, uh, they could get a job if they're good enough, basically, if they spend a lot of time for themselves. Um, so this basically yes, goes absolutely. back and goes more towards the theoretical of the the why does it do what it actually does and how can you make it do the next thing, basically. Teaching them yeah. more of an introduction towards programming uh, and getting them ready for the real deal. Yes. Yeah, and that is a trade-off, of course, because yeah. especially if a kid is really very much interested in the real deal, but this is too hard, right? Yeah. I remember when I was 15, I wanted to learn C++. Uh, I could already do basic <laughs> and with Pascal, but the, I also had the same struggle. You yeah. know, basic and Pascal, they were not really serious language. Even when I was a teenager already, Pascal was sort of outdated and not what people used. Yeah. What people use in industry was C++. And then you pick up a C++ book and you're like... Oh, yeah. I get started. <laughs> <laughs> I go back to Pascal, which is this is literally what I did, and I just yeah. did Pascal for a very long time uh, after that because it was just too hard and too overwhelming. So this initial interest it gets you somewhere, yeah. but it isn't enough. It wasn't enough in my case, and my initial interest was quite big. Yeah. It wasn't enough to get over that hurdle. Yeah, let's let's step back because you mentioned you went from kind of how I see it as an exploration phase, right? Is can I actually do this with the thoughts that are in my head? Can I make this programming language in the first place? Uh, and will it solve the problem that I have to the actual reality that you are in now, right? It's actually being used in a lot of schools across 18 different languages, which is ridiculous. Um, but you're also, <laughs> you're also kind of, yeah, the maintainer of this language now, which is a role kind of you've been put into or, or kind of the role you created for yourself, which is kind of weird to say. Um, but how, how do you see that for yourself? Because I don't think it's going to go away or I don't know how it would go away. Well, sometimes I fantasize about deleting the whole repository <laughs> and changing my email address. Yeah, and get, going <laughs> off the grid. Yeah. But I guess, other, or going off the grid, I guess other than that, no, it is true. It doesn't go away. And now more and more schools are using it. And, yeah. and we have even, we have repeat customers. Oh, your audio went away for a second uh, and now they're coming back for a second group yeah um i think Felina's audio keeps dropping yeah i think the zencaster audio will uh will fix it though i think we're back are you still there Felina? i'm still there yeah. okay yeah so you, no you dropped off I... you dropped off twice yeah. for me no worries keep uh keep going so we have re re returning customers yeah. now, which is really, really nice. We had a school last year that they used Hattie when it was really still uh, in its infancy. And now this year, again, they're, they're registering new classes. So that's, um, that's, that's both a compliment, but also that means that they are putting this into their lesson plan, right? They have yeah. this lesson plan where they say, well, we do Scratch, and then we do Hattie, and then we do Python. So you have a responsibility sort of to keep it uh, to keep it up and running exactly so yeah that, that is that is hard and it, it, sometimes you have to make really really tough decisions where there isn't a clear 
good answer, like just an example. We are translating now also the keywords to different languages. So you can program yeah. in Dutch if you want to. You can say vraag something instead of ask something. Nice. Um, and also in Spanish. And I don't really speak Spanish. So the, some of the Spanish contributors, they get into a discussion about what is the right translation for print. I had never really thought about that. But the word print in English, of course, is both imperative and also infinitive. Yeah. It is imperative, like you have to print something, but it's also the full word print, which in Dutch would be printen. So they say, no, we don't want to have the imperative form, print something. What we want to say is printen in Dutch something. Yeah. Uh, this is, we think that form fits best. It's like the computer now goes to print something rather than saying, you computer, you have to print something as in giving an order. So yeah, this discussion ensues. And yeah. then I have to make a decision, which do we pick? And I don't even speak that language. Yeah. So that is indeed a really interesting role where you consistently have to make all sorts of decisions, decisions about the language, but also decisions about the UI. Today I was chatting with a teacher and they said, well, there's this option that you can switch between different languages. Yeah. This is nice that you can do that, but also it's an extra button and it makes the UI fooler so it can be distracting for kids yes mm. yes this is a good point so do we put the button there do we keep the button do we make it a setting somewhere to, yeah. to switch on and off the button there's this con continuously like consistent barrage of questions yeah that if you're the benevolent dictator that i guess i am <laughs> i have to make all these decisions and of course we have discussions with contributors of, i ask teachers for their opinions yeah but ultimately it is it is me who, who makes these decisions. Yeah. Do you know how, how other languages have handled that? Some languages are just backed by companies and you have a team and a board and a whole shebang behind it. But some languages are still open sourced, right? Even though off the top of my head, I, I wouldn't know which ones those are. Yeah. So for example, Python for a very, very long time, the creator of Python, Guido Verossum, he was also what he calls the benevolent dictator. So he was the sole person making the changes yeah. or making the decisions, at least. Of course, also there was a mailing list and he, he very much listened to the voice of the community, but he was the one making the decisions. This is a model that some programming languages have. And sort of on the other end of the spectrum, you have JavaScript. Uh, there's a JavaScript committee, TC39, that I'm also part of, yeah. that makes decisions. And TC39, it has like 600 members. Exactly. So if a new proposal comes, and all the most of the members are backed by organizations. So there's someone there, like from Google and Facebook and Microsoft, the big, big companies participate in this committee. And then also some universities, like my university also participate yeah. as an organization. That is a, yeah, a profoundly different system where if you want to have a new feature, you make a proposal to the committee and it is discussed and you have this, well, it's really bureaucracy yeah. <laughs> in a committee where, you know, this, this proposal is now in stage one and then you vote to move this proposal to stage two. And that means someone can make a demo implementation. Someone now make an implementation, talk about how it, how it is implemented. Because sometimes, and this is really interesting, sometimes people have an idea and they start implementing it and then it doesn't feel well. <laughs> it is too hard. It's harder than they thought. Yeah. Or they implement the demo and they start playing with their own language feature and they're like, yeah, doesn't, doesn't feel, feel so right. good. This yeah. Doesn't feel right for whatever reason. So yeah, there's there's various various different models that programming languages have. Um, either they are indeed open source, but even languages that are open source, they can still have uh, a, a committee that makes all the decisions or a single person. Uh, or, or a single person that works for a company. 
Yeah. I think it's, I don't know if it's actually true, but with a comedian, it, it sounds more yeah, manageable, I guess, more maintainable maybe, because it's with a group, right? It's like democracy. Um, except you go through a lot more stages to get your changes in, basically. Uh, and if you're the single person... Yeah, so person, I think as sort of everything has pros and cons. Yeah. I think the nice thing about being one maintainer, and I don't want to say this is necessarily true for Hedy, but I think it's quite true for Python, is that you can make sure that what the language is doing, yeah. that in all decisions, this philosophy is there. And I think Guido, the creative Python, he made really many really good decisions. And he also talks about this sometimes, um, that uh, he calls this the Harry Potter language design philosophy, which is really, really nice. Mm. Uh, because in Harry Potter, you have all these things that happen in book one, and then you're in book six, and suddenly they make sense, right? So <laughs> the creative Harry Potter sort of uses stuff that she puts in there. And she's like, oh, but I actually did that because this reason. Yeah. Um, and, and so he says it's sort of intuition-driven programming language design where you make some choices and only later you realize why these choices were the good choices. If you have this one person using basically their intuition on everything, you do get a language that's coherent and feels like one thing. Yeah. Whereas I think a risk with the committee, and again, I'm not necessarily saying this is happening with JavaScript, but if you have a committee, you can get this, um, this, Hansel and Gretel house, right? With here's a pancake <laughs> and there's another cookie. There's a monstrosity of stuff. Yeah. And everyone likes their own little window or door or their own little shed that they put that's made out of chocolate in the back. Yeah. They all like their things. But as a whole, maybe there are some contradictions. And I guess in the case of JavaScript, it is somewhat true that there are some, some edge cases where you would expect the one thing maybe based on some features that do exist in the language, yeah. but then in this specific case, there is slightly different or very different behavior. Um, yeah, this this is a risk. And also the the fact that you can change your mind, like uh, Python famously made cha breaking changes between version two and version three. Yeah. Yeah, well, we can all debate whether or not that was a good choice, but you can do that if you're the boss, because you can just say, this is what we do. <laughs> Sorry, we messed up. And we've done this for Hedy as well. Okay. We, we, we split the level in two because we found that indentation is just really, really, really hard. Yeah. So we said, this is too hard to the first step. So we need to make something smaller. You can only indent one level. You cannot indent multiple levels initially. Yeah. And then only in a later level, you can do like nested uh, indentation because kids would do that unintentionally yeah. because they didn't know what they were doing and then then it does work but they have no clue why it works yeah so this is the thing i can just say sorry this is a bad choice we will now do it differently nobody can stop me <laughs> uh whereas and there are proper arguments against breaking backwards compatibility right oh people already have their lesson plans made yeah. uh, this is not nice for kids they log in today and then their programs from yesterday they don't work these are all valuable arguments but this can take you forever to make such a decision. You you can move quick and agile if you are the sole person making the decision. Exactly. But it can be psychologically quite heavy because sometimes I make a uh, <laughs> I make a decision. <laughs> yeah. So we, we had this with a contributor. Uh, I said yeah. let's implement something in a certain way. So I made an issue report. I said let's do this, and then a contributor actually did it exactly as I wanted, which is really nice. Sometimes people start arguing, but this is like one of my favorite contributors. Yeah. He just does what I want. Um, so he does this. 
And then another contributor comes in and she says, well, actually, this new version of the framework, the parser framework, has a feature to do this. So we can delete all this work and yeah. just do it slightly more efficient. So I was like to the first country that I'm sorry for throwing away your work because, you know, we changed <laughs> our minds on how to do something. He was, he was very good sport about it. He's like, oh, I understand this more elegant. But yeah, it does happen that I order something from the community and then later on we, we have to throw away or change the code because, yeah. What you say in Dutch. We, we have new information. Exactly, new insights. We want to do stuff differently. Yeah, this, this happens. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're only human, right? And I think it's fine. Everyone everyone makes mistakes. Uh, it's just learn from them and, and move forward, basically. You can't be stuck with your mistakes and, and, I don't know, let them take you down, I guess. I love the... Yeah, that, that's that's the other option, right? That's the... Yeah. yeah. So we, made, we made a mistake and now we have to, we have to nurse the mistake forever. I, I love the JavaScript example that you gave because me, from a user perspective, I've seen some stuff and I don't know why, but to me, it doesn't make sense, right? But now that you explain different people making different decisions, even maybe making mistakes, um, those end up in the language. And from a user perspective, you're going to see that, you're going to feel that because you're the one that's using the language. Uh, this is just on a bigger scale. Uh, and eventually... Yeah. Do you think Hedy will also reach that scale or or if I phrase it differently, where do you see Hedy going from here? Yeah, so I do think it, in the future it will be harder to make changes yeah. because more and more schools and more and more teachers are depending on Hedy to work the way it works. Yeah. And they start to create slides and lesson plans. So then if we do make changes, we know if it's small bug fixes, then they're happy. But they need, if we end up overhauling our levels again, yeah. uh, I don't think we will do that now. Now that we really have thousands of users, it was a bit easier to do <laughs> yeah, a year ago. So I, do, I don't plan that. But then again, it is also research, right? If we do a study and we see that something isn't working well, uh, it's sort of, sort of my moral responsibility to change. Like the, the localized keywords is a good example. Yeah. I didn't think it was necessary or useful in the beginning, especially for Dutch kids, because I thought Dutch teenagers, they know English, right? The yeah. Print is print and, and echo is echo. There's no difference. It is easy. Um, but then we do a user study. We ask kids, what is the most important thing we can change? And they say, we want to program in Dutch. Really? So I can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's surprised by this. Yeah. Everyone is surprised. Yeah, same here. Uh, so then, you know, I can have an opinion, but I cannot argue with my test subject, right? Yeah. If this is what these kids say, then, and this is also interesting because there might be some uh, cultural sample as well. The school that I work in is, is very much a sort of an, an inner city, lower socioeconomic class, lots of kids that don't have Dutch even at their first language. Okay. Yeah. Um, it is very, very well possible that the type of kids that we know are, or, and the type of kids we were when we were teenagers are very different than this specific demographic. So then that was a case where I thought, well, I don't, I personally do not see the value, but if this is what users need. Yeah. And of course, the interesting thing is once we build localized keywords for Dutch, then you can also do it for other languages. So now we also have Arabic keywords and we have Hindi keywords. Yeah. And you can see how in that context, there's no question whether that is useful because people that grow up 
uh, speaking Arabic as our first language, they don't even know what our letters are. Yeah. Right? A teacher cannot even explain, print, it starts with P. <laughs> what is a P? What exactly. does that even mean? What does it look like? Where yeah. is it saying on my keyboard? Right? How, do I, how do I type this thing? Yeah. So the, the, the nice thing also, and this is very true uh, in general, that if you make something inclusive for a certain category of kids, often a different category also benefits from that. But that's a clear, clear example of something that's, of course, I thought about it, yeah. but this was way on the low end of my to-do list. Also, because it was super hard to build and lots of work. Yeah. Uh, and it leads to all sorts of interesting side questions. Um, but yeah, so sometimes you, you, I think, have to, or at least it's good um, for you to listen to, to what the community wants, even if these are things where you necessarily, as a person, yourself don't see the value. Yeah. What's, I mean, it probably says a lot about you as a person. But I'm very stubborn, right? I can be like, oh, I want this thing. Um, and someone might disagree with me and I might still do it. Depends on the case, obviously. But you're very much open to feedback from the community, right? If it doesn't make sense to you, but that is what your users are saying, then obviously that should be the right choice. At least that's how I see it, depending on the context, yeah, I mean, depending on the thing. It is. A, it's not, So I said in the beginning of the episode, scratching my own ears, so I'm sort of like, <laughs> I have to eat my own words. Yeah. So yes, it is scratching my it is scratching my own teaching itch, right? Exactly. I can already do programming. I already know Python yeah. and many other languages. So it is not a language for me to use as a user. It is a language for me to use in teaching. Exactly. So if this is what kids say makes makes it easier, then yeah, you do have to take it very seriously. You have to you have to understand why. And then they do have good reasons. Right? Because of course we didn't just say, you know, <laughs> like a like a menu just tell us what to do and we will do it like without thinking about it of course yeah. we ask them and one of the things they say is that the keyword we have for asking something is ask and ask is a hard word to get right in dutch because we never have sk yeah there are, there are hardly any words in dutch where there is sk. so they're like yeah but sk, that's just it's weird to say it's yeah. hard to type i would often type aks ox because ks is something that that occurs more often so they're like, yes, <laughs> yeah, this is sensible. I mean, they're not just saying a random thing. Yeah. And it's actually known from other research as well. We have the word for, for, for a, a loop, for I in range. Yeah. That's, this wasn't even our study, but other people have already found that for is a really bad keyword because it sounds like for the word for. Exactly. So kids would type for, and especially if your first example is making a square, then you have four I in range four, <laughs> you have two times four, and they have spectacularly different spellings and meanings. And one is a four number and the other is a word four. So four is just a really, really bad word. Yeah. So yeah, it, yeah, makes, it makes sense. sense. In the end, it makes sense, but it goes from being kind of your programming language, right? Really in kind of an incubation thing, you're trying out more things to it's no longer yours. It's It's more the user's thing. And they're giving you feedback. This yeah. is how we want it. This is how we can yeah. best learn from it, basically. Um, yes, for sure. And also, it isn't always clear cut. Like, we, we do debate this a lot in the team. Yeah. Who is our user? Uh, is our user the, the student or is our user the teacher? Yeah. Some features are more teacher features than they are user features. And also, sometimes we, we get emails. Those emails are just a bit more frequent because those people maybe know more better how to reach out. We get emails from parents. Yeah. I think. Very often they are programming parents. Like, yeah, I'm doing this together with my son. Very often it's the son. <laughs> uh, and and I, I couldn't, uh, I, couldn't uh, I, I just happened to notice this and this and this and this. 
and then they start trying Python, full Python syntax in level one, and it doesn't work. And they're like, yeah, but it should already support whole Python. Yeah. So there's really these different type of users. So even if you say it is a thing of users, I, I 100% agree with that, but it's, it isn't even so easy to nail down who a user is yeah. and, and, and how to test it. And also the localized features, for example, uh, yeah, I rarely test the website in Arabic because everything is right to left and I don't understand anything. <laughs> right? So it's just a thing that gets tested less. Yeah. I feel bad about this. Of course, we have automated tests, but sometimes you also want to see what it looks like. So there are just these parts of the language that get more love and more interest than other parts. Yeah, yeah that makes sense in the end. Man, I, I love the journey you laid out. And I, I really feel <laughs> kind of how that journey went in the learnings that you've had, how you started and how you got to the point where you are now. Uh, I think the future is very bright, but it has its own challenges, right? I think that's with any product that you'll build. Uh, but I love that you've really created a tool to teach kids to program, basically. That's exactly what you've done. That's exactly the problem you wanted to solve. Um, in laying out that journey and, and the conversation we had, is there anything that's missing still? Anything you still want to share? No, I think we really shared the biggest things. Maybe we w want to share that we're <laughs> always looking for help for contributors. Yeah. So maybe we can put the GitHub uh, repository in the show notes. And also we have a website. We use a framework called Weblates to translate. Yeah. So if you have teacher friends, they don't have to be programmers, that know a language that isn't in the list of 18 languages, yeah. we also very, very welcome more translations in languages that we don't yet support. Um, we, we are still missing some big languages. So if people want to help out, that would be very, very helpful. Yeah, we'll do everything possible to put that in the description. Uh, all the links to Felina as well, Twitter handle, probably LinkedIn stuff as well. So you can reach out and, uh, and see what you think about the language. Um, give us some feedback. I think that'd be awesome. And if you've made it this far into the show, um, give us a review, maybe on a podcast platform, or let us know in the comment section below on YouTube uh, what you thought of this episode. Um, and we'll see you in the next one then. Beyond coding. From your sponsors, Zebia, creating digital leaders. <laughs>